For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the first part in a series examining the growth of basis schools and what they offer families looking for education alternatives. And find out how the Holocaust History Center in Tucson is shining a light on justice for the global lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer communities. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Basis schools have been called America's best and most challenging by Newsweek and The Washington Post. What they sell, a highly rigorous public education, is undoubtedly alluring to parents who are dissatisfied with public schools. The network originated in Tucson as a single charter school. Arizona Daily Star reporter Yu Yun Jung spent months investigating how BASIS went from one location to an international network of charter and private schools. Here's the story. Addition is our last word. Willow? In a first grade classroom at BASIS Phoenix South Primary, students learn material that's about one year ahead of their grade level. This is the newest charter school in the BASIS network. The accelerated pace of learning is the norm in basis schools. It's why parents choose it. Can we say that all together? Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Community property of addition. The basis franchise is known nationwide for its challenging academics, and it has some results to show for it. It's been dominating national charter school rankings for several years in a row now. Its students are some of the best test takers in the world. They were some of the highest scorers on the international benchmark test. The school network says on its website that if BASIS were a nation, it would have outscored all the other nations. Peter Bazanson is the CEO of BASIS Schools. We have a laser-like focus on academics, and we treat the school as a place that's principally about academics, academic excellence, and academic progress of children. He says thousands of parents are on wait lists nationwide to get their kids in. Now, BASIS is a web of more than 30 schools, serving some 20,000 students in charter and private schools stretching from Arizona all the way to Shenzhen, China. At one time, though, BASIS was a small mom-and-pop school in Tucson with just a few hundred children. It was a little bit different back in those days, says Andrew Sterling, who taught government and history there. What BASIS was, originally, was you know, kind of the one, a one-room schoolhouse with a pretty quirky, diverse student body, you know, dedicated teachers, and this kind of sense of a general understanding that we're going to try and really focus on academics. About 20 years ago, Olga Bloch, an economist from the Czech Republic, wanted a more rigorous education for her daughter, more like what she was used to back home. So she and her husband, former UA professor Michael Bloch, decided to start their own school. Their school would combine the best of both worlds, the rigorous study habits from Europe and the hands-on learning from American classrooms. They would call it Building Academic Success in School, or BASIS. Their first school opened in Midtown in 1998. But BASIS popularity didn't explode until the late 2000s. Until 2010, when the Oro Valley School opened, there were just two BASIS schools, one in Tucson and another in Scottsdale. 
Andrew Sterling, the history teacher, started in 2008. That's the year Newsweek named Basis Tucson the number one school in America. From the first day I began at Basis, there was a lot of pressure on the kids. Um, and I think historically this would have been at a kind of turning point when Basis transitioned from being a startup essentially to becoming the international conglomerate that it is today. And I noticed the change, and so did the kids I was teaching. In 2009, corporate management, Basis Ed, took over the school's management and operations. That's the company that Peter Bazanson is in charge of. Sterling says things began shifting then. As Basis pushed to grow, pressure mounted for students to push harder and score even higher on tests. Over the next few years, the network would continue to add several more schools that looked identical to each other across Arizona. And he says the management structure became very top-down. I did not like what I saw as the growing corporatization of the culture, the standardization, the, um, you know, it felt like a McDonaldization. Riding the momentum created by repeated appearances on national school rankings, Basis expanded rapidly, and the growth happened mostly behind closed doors and under many layers of corporate bureaucracies, while the network reaped the benefits of operating public charter schools. It borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars through public bonding authorities, using existing schools and public funding as collateral. Basis also expanded to include private and international operations, something not many charter school chains have successfully managed. And across the country, the school choice movement grows. Basis embodies the ideals of school choice, innovation, differentiation, and above and beyond academic results. President Donald Trump and his billionaire education secretary Betsy DeVos are among the biggest champions of school choice. DeVos spoke at the Brookings Institution in March. We celebrate the benefits of choices in transportation and in lodging. But doesn't that pale in comparison to the importance of educating the future of our country? Why do we not allow parents to exercise that same right to choice in the education of their child? In the same speech, DeVos compared school choice to using Uber or Lyft instead of a taxi. Nobody mandates that you take an Uber or Lyft over a taxi, nor should they. But if you think ride-sharing is the best option for you, the government shouldn't get in your way. The truth is that in practice, people like having more options. What they're trying to persuade the American public of is that public schools don't belong to the public, that they are consumer items. Diane Ravitch was Assistant Secretary of Education during the George H.W. Bush administration. She's now an education historian and a professor at New York University. And that choosing your school should, is a consumer choice and it's not a public responsibility. Many years ago, Ravitch advocated for the same things Basis values most, more rigor, testing, and choice. She now opposes all of those things. My views were shaped by seeing how things were working out. The original idea of charter schools, schools within schools that would serve as labs for innovation, turned out to be so different in reality. They've now become big business. There's now an industry around charter schools. Bases borrowed big to grow big. In a span of about 17 years, the number of schools went from 2 to 31. Basis CEO Bazanson says that's just the beginning of his plans. What I'd want to look back on is to see that there was a basis 
school, basis curriculum school, at least one in every single major metropolitan city in the world. Just like all other charter schools, basis schools are funded by the state on a per-pupil basis, like public school districts. But there is no dedicated funding for charter school buildings, so basis turned to the government bond market for answers. Before getting into the nuts and bolts of how all of this money stuff works, we need to first understand the structure of the whole organization. It's got a lot of different entities. To make it easier, we'll compare them to something we know really well, body parts. Say the individual fingers represent each of the charter schools. The hand that's holding all of the fingers together is the charter holder. The charter holder is a nonprofit organization called Basis Schools Incorporated, or BSI. In Arizona, BSI reports to the Arizona State Board of Charter Schools. The hand then connects to a torso via the arm. In this case, the torso is Basis Ed, which is a private education management organization, or an EMO as it's called in education circles. Basis Ed manages and operates all of the charter schools and provides academic oversight to the private and international operations on a contract basis. It being the torso also connects to two sets of legs and feet. Each one represents a separate for-profit company that runs private or international schools. Then at the top, there's the head. That's Basis Educational Ventures. That's what holds the equities and assets of all of its subsidiaries. Here's how Bazanson explains the system. He's the CEO of the Torso. All of us tried to figure out a way back then that we could have centralized services and save money for individual schools and control centrally of those schools so that Basis Phoenix, Basis Scottsdale, Basis Oro Valley um, could exist and be the same as Basis Tucson um, with their own unique personalities, but ultimately we're trying to replicate and grow what works. BSI, the charter holder, the arm, is the one borrowing money to fuel the growth for charter schools. It's also the only basis subsidiary for which financial information is publicly available. It's a nonprofit organization. At the end of fiscal year 2016, BSI had $230 million in long-term debt. That's according to a consolidated financial audit submitted to the State Charter Schools Board. Most of that was to build or renovate schools. The charter holder borrowed in Arizona sometimes to build and renovate schools in Washington, D.C. and Texas. And in the process, BASIS used existing charter school facilities as collateral. In a recent loan, BASIS borrowed $84 million for capital projects across the network. $31 million of that was used for refunding a previous loan for the D.C. campus. That was secured by 14 existing charter school facilities in Arizona and Washington, D.C., and with the state funding they receive. BASIS used its existing schools as leverage to borrow funds to build new schools, but Byzantin says the city of Phoenix isn't fronting the money, nor is it liable for the debt. It's simply creating access to the bond market fueled by private investors. However, taxpayers, primarily those in Arizona, are paying for the costs, including transaction fees and interest, because per-pupil funding from state governments is what pays for them. And BASIS didn't need approval from anyone other than its own governing board, unlike school districts. If Tucson Unified were to go out for a bond to build a new school, its board needs to first vote to allow the district to ask taxpayers if it can do that. And then there needs to be an election for the taxpayers to actually vote on it. 
Basis charter school buildings are not publicly owned. They're owned by Basis. Should the schools close or the network default on a loan, the fate of those facilities are up to private hands. That seems illogical that we would allow them to use a share of the public dollars for providing current services to kids and acquire an asset with the public dollars that is then owned by this private entity. That's Bruce Baker. He's a charter school finance expert who teaches at Rutgers University. They're spending a whole lot of public money in transaction costs, interest rates and so on. Um, then that's just kind of a stupid and inefficient policy design. Eileen Sigmund, executive director of the Arizona Charter Schools Association, says her organization has been working to overhaul the school funding system for quite a while now. We would want to make sure that any policy decision looks at the outcomes for our students, such as academic performance, graduation rates, different metrics to make sure that the public investment in a public education is yielding results for our students, our community, and our state. As it stands now, Baker says the way Basis and other big charter companies borrow money exposes public dollars at risk without the public necessarily knowing how their money is spent. It's questionable as to who holds the bag when some or any of this collapses. Deanna Rowe is the executive director of BSI, the hand that actually owns the buildings, purchased with borrowed money, paid for by taxpayers. She argues the risk is actually negligible. We have the enrollment at our current schools, we have our strong academic performance, and you couple that with the continued demand for our schools, which makes that risk negligible. On the flip side, uh, that's offset by um, their appetite for expansion, and usually fairly rapid expansion, and their additional debt that they offer you know, often issue. That's Jessica Matsumori. She's an analyst for Standard & Poor's Global Ratings Agency. They have a pretty weak pro forma MADS coverage, or that means the, um, uh, the amount of excess revenues generated each year to cover their debt. Um, they also have negative and declining and restricted net assets, and then um, moderately high debt per students and a pretty low days cash on hand. By the end of fiscal year 2015, BSI was about $23 million in the red. Rowe says that distress was caused by refinancing loans for better rates and prepayment penalties. The refinancing results in a lower interest rate and then allows us to put that, mu that many more dollars into, back into the academics and the, and the academic program and teacher salaries. When you look at the, the agenda for that meeting, uh, there's a call to order, a call to public. This is Jim Hall. He runs a charter school watchdog group called Arizonans for Charter School Accountability. It's actually a one-man band. He does everything himself. In a corner office he rents in downtown Phoenix, the retired public school principal investigates charter schools' financial documents and writes about them. Right now, he's going over a basis governing board agenda, pointing out how rarely the meetings happen. So since, since the summer, with all the construction they've done, everything that happens in the basis schools, the only thing their board talked about was this website accessibility policy. And that's really, really typical of, of basis. Hall is sort of a notorious figure in charter school circles. 
One time, he showed up to a charter school company's board meeting and got escorted out. He says he's dedicated his retirement to this because he finds the discrepancy between reporting requirements for charter schools and that of district schools baffling. The philosophy of charter schools was to give more freedom and less restrictions to allow for innovation and more efficiency, he says. But in reality... And what happens in real life is they have almost no reporting requirements and yet are, are terribly inefficient in the way they operate. So it hasn't made charter schools more efficient by, by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they're you know, far less efficient. And one reason they're less efficient is because they don't have to follow the rules. The teachers in classrooms, the principal, and even the janitor at Basis Charter Schools are actually employees of Basis Ed, the private management, the torso, and not the schools themselves. The public does not have access to many of the details of the contract between them. Much of the information is considered a trade secret, Basis argues that it includes proprietary techniques that are the foundation of its success. What the public can actually see are two lump sums on the nonprofit's tax filings addressed to Michael Block and Basis Ed. The 2015 filing says Basis Ed was paid about $16 million in management fees and $62 million for employee salaries and benefits in the previous year. Bazanson says the corporate structure helps run the schools more efficiently. And he adds, the charter school growth is not related to the network's private growth. The expansion of the charter schools is wholly separate and not commingled with anything having to do with the expansion of international or independent schools. But he declined to provide information about basis said executive salaries, saying it's a private company. Before Basis Charter Schools began contracting with Basis Ed, we used to know a lot more. Tax filings show that in 2008, Olga Block made nearly $200,000 as the CEO of Basis Charter Holder, and Michael Block earned more than $150,000 in various roles. Back then, it had two schools and just over 1,000 students. That same year, TUSD superintendent made just over $200,000. The district served more than 56,000 students in more than 80 schools at that time. I supported the of charters when they were an idea and a theory. And then as they began to be implemented, uh, the original idea of charters sounded like a great idea. That's Diane Ravitch again, the former assistant U.S. Education Secretary. But the original idea, as she envisioned it, has turned into something she no longer believes in. The nature of privatization is that businesses seek to get the, the most profitable uh, consumers. They, their aim is to stratify and to, create, and to take advantage of inequities. And so those who have the most get the best treatment, and those who have the least get the worst treatment. She says the matter of public education shouldn't be treated as a commodity, period. But Sigmund of the Charter School Association says families ultimately know what's best for their children. We have choice in almost every other aspect of our life. Having choice in the best educational fit for your child is fundamental in Arizona and really should be celebrated. For Arizona Public Media, the Arizona Daily Star, and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, I'm Yuhyun Jung. Next week, in Part 2, a report on the students who seek education at basis schools and the challenges the network faces by ensuring equal access for all. 
2016 was the deadliest year on record for the LGBTQ community in the United States. Next, in a story produced by Andrew Brown, find out how and why the Holocaust History Center in Tucson is shining a light on human rights and social justice for all. A few years ago, some people might have said, why another Holocaust history museum in this country? There are over five dozen. And the answer is because this past is always present. I'm Brian Davis, the executive director here at the Jewish History Museum and Holocaust History Center. We've developed it with a very particular sort of curatorial ethic, which is to present people as whole individuals beyond their persecution at a given time and place. The dichotomy between past and present should be collapsed to understand that things don't happen in exactly the same way, but these forces that have been part of human history forever are still with us. When you walk in here, something happens. Whether you're Jewish or not, it doesn't really matter. My name is Robert Yerachmiel Snyderman, and I am a consultant for the Jewish History Museum and Holocaust History Center. This content around persecution, around dehumanization, around the denial of history, around the stripping of human rights through legislation, around military violence. There's no way that the Jewish community can just take ownership over this, this vast phenomenon that we have to struggle with as human beings. We have a small space here dedicated to addressing contemporary human rights issues. It's a critical space, even an epicenter on this campus. We're now connecting the persecution and murder of gay German men during the era of the Third Reich to the ongoing persecution of LGBTQ people around the world today. It's stunning. And I mean that in, in the way of, you know, I came around the corner and felt stilled. Partially just to see trans and LGBT and queer people represented with so much care and to know that, that part of the reason we have to have this particular exhibit is because the violence is not historical, but is ongoing. For the purposes of this, I am T.C. Tolbert, Tucson's Poet Laureate, and I was a um, contributing member to the exhibit. It's titled Invisibility and Resistance, and we're intentionally countering the marginalization of LGBTQ people by making visible their histories, identities, and lived realities today. Invisibility and resistance is something that, that is in conversation with everything else that's occurring in, in, in the Holocaust History Center. Small crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks you all for being here. This was a true community collaboration, um, and, and I was truly just one small part of it. I'm transgender, documenting and being aware of the violence that um, is pervasive in the LGBT community mm. has been a part of my life um, for a long time and it's why I was brought into this project. So well, I identify as trans, I also identify as genderqueer. Um, you know, when folks ask what my pronoun preference is, I tend to go by he because, well, usually just because I have facial hair and that's a, a default, <laughs> which is great. I love that. But I always tell people I love to be referred to as hey girl, too. It just, it makes me so happy. Things to keep in mind is that in 10 nations, 
across the world, um, being LGBT is punishable by death. According to the Trans Murder Monitoring Project, a trans person is murdered every other day or about 28 hours. Um, here in the U.S., that breaks down to about one trans person is murdered about every two weeks. You know, a lot of times I'm asked, well, what can cisgender folks or non-transgender folks do or straight allies do? And I cannot say it enough. LGBT folks cannot do this on our own. We've been doing it on our own. We truly need this to be your issue too. That was the largest crowd we've ever held in this space. We counted 130 people. And what I loved about that crowd, which is something that we really want to hold here, is that it was incredibly intergenerational. It was also incredibly diverse. I think hope is that something very beautiful and liberating is ahead of us. And that if we suffer, and if we are oppressed, that we will do what is right in reacting to it. The more I learned about history and the ways that trans people and queer people have existed and have found ways to live with a lot of like resilience and resistance is to me, yeah, incredible cause for hope. Which is not to discount all of the ways that I, I feel like we may be trying to turn back time on some of that progress. I think this exhibit belongs here because I do think there's a shared root in that when we can other someone or a group of people, it makes them less human. I think it's also part of the human condition to sort of get lulled into this idea of progress as sort of on cruise control, but it takes active awareness and attention in an ongoing way to maintain uh, progress, and that's what this center hopes to do for this community. The Jewish History Museum and Holocaust History Center will co-host the third annual Stone Avenue Block Party with the Mexican Consulate on Saturday, October 7th at 7 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. There is more with Center Director Brian Davis on the next edition of Metro Week with Vanessa Barchfield, Friday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. on PBS 6. You can also find it at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.